Holy Father, thank you so much for gatherings in this room again. We stand because of you and we stand firm because of your strength. And we remain so very grateful because you are a loving and caring and giving God. Thank you for giving us life that is truly life by sending your son. And thank you that through your son comes your Holy Spirit to reside in our lives and in the life of this church. Without your spirit, there would be no life, none whatsoever. And you just continue to give and give and you give us your word. And we are hungry for it and we want to learn and be fed. So again and again, I just plead, get me out of the way so that what you want said gets said so that we can have life, healthy life, life in Christ. Spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-dominated life. Ultimately, to the praise of your glory. To the glory of the King, Jesus, our Emperor, in whose name we pray. Amen. Every Tuesday morning, Sarah and I go to an exercise class together at 6 a.m. I'm exhausted just thinking about that. And we work out in a class together, and so uh, there's a lot of mirrors in the classroom where we're doing our push-ups, and every now and then, I can see through one of the mirrors outside the hall when I'm not looking at the clock. Other members walking down the hall. And they're accompanied by these uh, muscular assistants toting clipboards. I come to find out that those muscular assistants are, are Jim's squadron of personal trainers whom you can rent by the session or a block of sessions, and they'll take you to a special workout room. Now, not everybody can go into this room. You've got to have one of the muscular assistants to go into that room. In that room, there's another set of weights and other workout equipment, and your personal trainer will take you through and help you and design a customized personal fitness plan. Of course, at the beginning, there'll be some medical questions and then a body fat test and cardio test, etc., etc. But that trainer's going to walk you through this customized personal fitness plan so that you can attain optimal health benefits. This personal 
trainer. And you know, sometimes it's really, I mean, just the slightest coaching on form or breathing can really make a big difference. And then, of course, there's the power of the trainer's presence, who is there not only to instruct you, but to inspire you, coach you, challenge you, five more reps, five more push-ups, five more sit-ups, five more minutes, five more. I'm sick of hearing five more. <laughs> and you know, you're paying for it, so you've got to be there. That kind of accountability. This personal fitness trainer. The thought occurred to me, it would be wonderful Wouldn't it to have that kind of coaching, not just inside a special room in a gym, but I mean 24-7, right? Let's say it's Tuesday night and it's 8.30 and you got the munchies and you go to your refrigerator and poof, suddenly your personal trainer appears. What are you doing? (laughs) What 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 are you doing? Drop the Twinkie and drop down and give me 50. Now, five more. (laughs) Let's not limit this to fitness either. What about relational fitness? Let's say you and your spouse are having an spirited discussion, and (laughs) you're about to say something that's just going to really not be healthy. Poof, all of a sudden, your trainer appears and says... Randy, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God requires. And you listen to that trainer, and you spare yourself a cold night alone out on the couch. Maybe it's finances or time management or other decisions and think about it is there is there really really any area in our lives where we wouldn't benefit around the clock by someone very present very wise encouraging us challenging us pushing us someone who desires our welfare Someone not limited to the confines of a special workout room, restricted to only those who can afford the attention. Well, Merry Christmas, church family. The good news is that God has provided such counsel, such instruction through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Consider Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too 
are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This morning, I want us to consider the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person in our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Biblical Christianity teaches that God is one. There is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. And when you read the Bible, you can see our triune God. Uh, I'm thinking of Luke chapter 1, verse 35, uh, when uh, the angel announced to Mary that she would uh, give birth to the Messiah. This virgin birth would be a supernatural birth. Mary asked, how is this possible? Luke 1, 35 says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There is our triune God. Just in Luke 1, 35, Holy Spirit, Most High, Son of God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is God. Uh, When Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, he said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them what? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God. And in Ephesians chapter 1, you can't read uh, verses uh, 3 through 14 without seeing our triune God. There is the work of God the Father in the first few verses of Ephesians. And then there is God the Son in the person of Jesus. And then in the verses that I just read earlier, God the Holy Spirit. Well, I want us to consider the Holy Spirit this morning. Who is He? And there's just so much to say, and I need to limit our lesson for the sake of time to the book of Ephesians and these verses that we just read. Here is who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the divine resident, the divine resident, the divine resident of our hearts and the heart of this church family. The Holy Spirit is the divine resident, the seal of God's ownership and the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. And I just want to unpack that big idea. Divine resident, seal of ownership, deposit, guaranteeing heaven. Those three truths. Let's get going. First, the Holy Spirit is the divine resident in my life and the life of the church. Now, now to be a resident means the Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person not an energy force, not like Star Wars, the force be with you that you learn to master and manipulate for your purposes. It doesn't work that way. That's not how the Bible uh, portrays and teaches us about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a personality, not an energy force. He's a divine resident, and we learn about our amazing God that he is a temple dweller. 
God is a temple dweller. He always has been. Uh, In Genesis, we learn that God indwelled the temple of the garden, the garden of Eden, this temple garden that he inhabited. And then later on in Scripture, we see how he indwelled Sinai, Mount Sinai. Uh, Sinai was a type of temple. And then later on, uh, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, as a precursor to Solomon's temple. God's a temple dweller. And then when the Messiah came, God incarnate in Jesus Christ, Jesus referred to himself as a temple. The Spirit indwelled. And that's why he could march into Jerusalem and say, destroy this temple. And in three days I will rebuild it. And now, having been crucified and resurrected and ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father, he has sent his spirit to indwell his people. Now in these last days, we are the temple, Scripture says, of the living God, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, spirit. The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and that word spirit is pneuma, meaning wind or breath, not air, not air, but wind or breath, meaning there's activity and motion and life. We have life because the Holy Spirit resides in us. God is not a distant deity. He's a temple dweller. He's here with us right now by his spirit, his Holy Spirit. And there are two very important implications to the divine residency of the Holy Spirit. And the first is this. It is possible to live a holy life in this broken, fallen, sinful world because of the Holy Spirit's residency. The the Holy Spirit's presence in our life means that we are not to withdraw into some panic room. We're not to just section ourselves off and hunker down and ride out the storms of life waiting for heaven. Yes, yes, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, Satan, is very real. And dominions and powers and rulers and authorities exist and are evident in this life, but they are not subject to the one who is life. Those authorities and powers, Christ is sovereign over them, and the spirit that raised Christ from death has raised us. And knowing this frees us to enter our world and live without fear. Because we are accompanied by one who is greater than the world. This is what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Can you hear our triune God in those verses again? 
John says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And then John says, there is no fear in love. So you do not have to walk in fear because you have in you one who resides, who is greater than this world. And that's good news. You're never alone. The second implication is this. Not only is it possible to live in this broken, fallen world without being contaminated by it because of the residency of the Holy Spirit, but, but also um, the promised Holy Spirit reminds us of one of the most profound truths in Christianity, and it's this. It's impossible to do it alone. You can't do it alone. Unfortunately, some have come to that conclusion. Unfortunately, some have come to the conclusion that God's help ends in the delivery room. And now that I'm a child of God, now that I've been born again, well, it's up to me to grow. It's, it, some, some mistakenly believe, well, I'm saved by God's grace, but I'm kept by my works and my efforts. It's as if you know, Jesus, having died and rose and ascended and now seated at the right hand of God, says to his people, okay, uh, see you when you get here. Uh, and in the meantime, do your best. And God understands. Do your best. And God understands. And and. So life becomes this long string of joys and sorrows and summers and winters and, and we, you just need to get through it the best you can and at the end there's this pie in the sky by and by. But, you know, there's no dynamic, there's no distinction that can be attributed to anything other than just sheer human determination. And as a result of that, in many cases, there's little distinction between saints and sinners. Statistically and Observationally, there's little difference between those inside of Christ and outside of Christ, except for these two trite statements. Just do your best, and God understands. Now, that's not good news. Someone once wrote, if the Christian life is simply a matter of doing our best, there was no need for God to send his Holy Spirit. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe your best isn't good enough? Maybe God doesn't want your best. Did your best earn you salvation? Is your best going to maintain your salvation? You honestly think by doing your best you will become a mature believer? Did doing your best make you a mature sinner? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48 about the kind of life that God wants from us. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Guys like me like to fiddle with uh, that word perfect to try to make it, you know, mean something else other than what it just means. What does it mean? It means perfect. That's what it means. 
perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's like, well, I can't do that. I mean, that's impossible. You're right. You're right. What's impossible for us is possible with God. And so for Christmas, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, this divine resident who lives in our hearts and in the heart of this church family, assuring us, promising us, you're never alone. Jesus said, last of Matthew's gospel, I'll be with you always. And he's keeping that promise through the promised Holy Spirit. And he's doing through us what we could never do by ourselves. This amazing gift of the divine residency of the Holy Spirit. That is good news. He is the divine resident. And we learn from Ephesians that he is also the seal of God's ownership in my life. That's the second truth I want us to look at. Having believed, Paul says, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what's that? What does that mean, seal? Is that like at the zoo? No. A seal was, a, was like a mark. Back then, kings had signet rings, and they would say stamp on a blob of uh, wax or a clay tablet, their signet, it was like a signature. And that seal was their mark. It was, it, was a, it was a signal that that object belonged to the king. It's a sign of ownership, a sign of possession. And so Paul says that you were marked in him with a seal. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. And why is that important? Well, here's why, it's, here's why it's important in my life. My life is a constant fight and struggle against the pressures and pulls of this world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the battle for Christ-likeness is, is grueling and unending. And there are, week, there are weeks I come to church there's weeks i come to this pulpit and and you know i just i just don't feel very much subjectively like a child of god and i begin to doubt well am i a child of god is this just a sham what's going on and paul's words are words of encouragement to me he says don't trust don't trust yourself trust the seal you belong to me. You belong. And this was good news to the Christians in Ephesus who came out of an idol-infested culture, a culture of gods and goddesses who were fickle and who, you know, in that religious system before they came to Christ, you never knew where you stood with Artemis. You never knew. The, the, the best you could hope for was a mm, maybe. That's not gospel. That's not good news. 
The gospel says that your fate does not rest with a fickle, hostile power. Your destiny rests in the hands of the one true God who makes you stand firm in Christ. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. You hear that? You don't make you stand firm in Christ. God makes you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, Paul says. See, the word Christ is a great wordplay. The word Christ means the anointed one. And so right off of that word Christ, he says, he anointed us. Uh, God makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He Christed us. He Christed us. Set his seal of ownership on us. And put a spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You've been given this gift of this divine resident who reminds you that you belong to the king. You're his. You're his. That's encouraging. And let me just take it one step further here. That you have been sealed but the Holy Spirit also signifies not only ownership, but inaccessibility. Inaccessibility. As if the seal says, this belongs to the king, keep your hands off. I'm thinking of the tomb of Christ when the Roman soldiers sealed the tomb. They sealed the tomb, meaning... Keep your hands off this tomb. It's kind of like when our police use that yellow line, that yellow tape, you know? Do not cross. That's what this is. It's a sealing. Seal the scene. And so when I'm tempted, when I'm contemplating forbidden fruit, the Holy Spirit resides in me and reminds me, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? You're marked. You belong to the king. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. The king's not going to let you get away with that. Keep your hands off. He's saying that to my heart. The enemy's in my heart, tempting me to commit treason against my king. Listen to these words in James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you hear that? The Holy Spirit sees us flirting with with temptation, with materialism, with addiction, with some attraction to someone you have no business being attracted to. And he acts the way a loving friend acts to an addict. Intervention. He gets in my face. He says, you're killing yourself. I'm not going to let you do that. The Holy Spirit's love for you has a bite to it, has teeth. He's for you. And sometimes that means he's against you. (laughs) He's against you for you. And when we live like he doesn't exist, this divine person living in our hearts, when we just live like he's not there, this almighty, 
all-knowing, omnipresent God is grieved. He's grieved. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you know what it is? Do you know what a gift it is to have someone who cares enough about your life and who's paying attention to your life and mine? He is willing to protect you from yourself. The Holy Spirit. Someone uh, wrote that the human heart is like a boardroom. A boardroom. You know, big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, whiteboard. And there's a committee around the table. And that committee is you. There's the social self, the private self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. And the, the committee's always arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated, upset. Rarely does the committee come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We're like that. We tell ourselves it's because we have too many responsibilities or we're too busy or whatever, but the truth is we're indecisive. And we are held back by small thoughts of Jesus. Now, someone can then accept Jesus, and that can either go one of two ways. One way is to give Jesus a seat around the table. (laughs) But that's not gospel. Because when you do that, you just make him one more voice. And that's a recipe for complication. The other way is to say, Jesus, my way isn't working. Fire the committee. Own me. Run my life. Take over. And that is not complication. That is salvation. The Holy Spirit, this divine resident, who is the seal of ownership, the seal that says, I belong to God. You were bought with a price. Let me run your life. I'm the most qualified person to run your life, Randy. The Holy Spirit says, let me. Let me. Accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus to the table. It's getting all the other idols out of the room. Well, thirdly, let's consider the Holy Spirit as the down payment. Our divine resident who is the seal of God's ownership on our lives and who is the down payment guaranteeing our inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. Our inheritance, what is that? Our inheritance is a somewhere with a someone. Our inheritance has to do with resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth living with a resurrected king forever. That's our inheritance. And more and more, God God wants that to be the reason why we get out of bed in the morning. Think about your perfect day, if you would. Think about your, just your absolute 
dream of a day, the day that would just make you pop out of bed and tackle the day. What's that in your mind? More and more, God wants that to be your inheritance. Resurrected body, resurrected earth, resurrected king. And until that day, the day of our complete redemption, Christ has sent his spirit ahead as a down payment, a deposit. And what you need to understand is that the the Holy Spirit does not give me a down payment. He is the down payment. He is the deposit. And so what that means is that his mission and his entire vocation is to keep me longing for the day. The day that I will see the face of the loved one. Listen, the glory of heaven will not be getting to see the face of our loved ones. Oh, that'll be sweet, but that's not the glory of heaven. The glory of heaven will be seeing the face of our loved one. Loved one, Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit's mission is to transform my life and mold my life and change my desires so that I want Jesus more than life itself. The Holy Spirit's mission is about, is about Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit's ministry is what uh, an author named J.I. Packer says is a floodlight ministry. A floodlight ministry. You know, when floodlights are done well, you don't know where the light's coming from, do you? All you see is the building upon which the lights are flooded. And the Holy Spirit is the hidden floodlight fixed on Jesus. It's as if the Holy Spirit stands behind me, throwing a floodlight over my shoulder on Jesus who stands facing me. And the Spirit's message, the Spirit's message to me is now, the Holy Spirit never says, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. The Holy Spirit rather says, look at him. See his face. Listen to him. Hear his word. Go to him. Have life. Get to know him. Taste his peace and joy. That's his mission. His mission is summarized in John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to work in your life so that Jesus must increase and you and me and our church must decrease. Now think about that for a moment. Go back to my gym and that special room with the muscular assistant and the clipboard. What if you went to a personal trainer? And what if you bought a block of sessions and you did all the workouts, but at the end of those sessions... You grew weaker. What'd you do? Fire the trainer. Get a new personal trainer. Yet what I just described is the Holy Spirit's mission. 
Church family, contrary to what we have typically heard and been enslaved by, Christian growth is not becoming stronger and stronger and more and more competent. Christian growth and progress is marked by a growing realization of how weak and incompetent we are and how strong and competent Jesus continues to be for us. That's spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not marked by our growing independent fitness. Rather, it's marked by our dependence, our growing dependence on Christ's fitness for us. Don't you remember the Apostle Paul and what he said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, near the end of his life? He said, although I am less than the least of all of God's people. That's an apostle talking What I'm telling you is that Christianity doesn't get easier over time. It doesn't. And for Paul, spiritual growth is realizing how utterly dependent we are on Christ's mercy and the cross. It's it's not arriving at some point where we need Jesus less because we're getting better and better. I'll take it from here, Lord. Paradoxically, It was Paul's ability to freely admit his weakness that demonstrated just how strong he was. And who brought this reality to him? The Holy Spirit. This divine resident. This temple dweller. Who is the seal of ownership upon his life and your life and the life of this church. And who is the down payment, the floodlight, keeping us focused on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, guaranteeing that the best is yet to come. That is why I am so grateful that we share in the Lord's Supper each Sunday. Because the Lord's Supper is not about me saying, wow, I had a great week. Gosh, it's good. No. The Lord's Supper is about, God, I'm weak. I'm frail. I'm unable. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? In other words, the goal of self-examination is not to discover my worthiness or sufficiency. Rather, the goal is to discover my unworthiness and Christ's worthiness, my deficiency and Christ's sufficiency, my weakness and his strength. Confidence in my transformation is not the source of my assurance. Rather, confidence in Jesus is. And that is taught to us by this ultimate personal trainer who is not my personal assistant. He's the personal trainer, advocate, coach, guide, teacher, He is God himself. Shall we pray?